0: So, to the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Father, we come before you not loaded with a burden of guilt but with confidence that you will hear us because we have put our hope in your Son, the precious Lamb, your Lamb, who was sent into this world holy and blameless that he might take upon himself the sins of the world, our sins, that we might find forgiveness and life with you. Because of that, God, we love you. We know that we have been loved and so we love you and one another as you have commanded us. And Father, just as Christ was our lamb. Father, you also tell us that he is our shepherd. He is the resurrected king who leads us and guides us. And so, Father, we desire to hear his voice this morning. We pray that as your word is opened, that Christ's voice would ring out from it, calling his sheep to himself and to greater faithfulness. We pray, Father, that you would be kind to us this morning. Give us ears to hear our shepherd's voice. You would give us minds to understand Your Word and hearts that long to respond in faith. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 5 this morning. Psalm 5. This morning, as we begin, I want to start with a personal testimony that could be labeled Confessions of a Night Owl. Since high school, I've always been wired towards staying up late. And when my kids were younger and my schedule was more flexible, some of my most productive hours were between 10 at night and 1 in the morning. But then your kids start to get older and school times get earlier. And you come to a church like this where elders' meetings are in a different time zone in the morning, and suddenly what you find is that your circadian rhythms seem to be lost forever. Despite my natural inclination towards late nights and easy mornings, here's what I've seen again and again in my life. No matter how much I want to claim, I'm just not wired that way. If I don't start each and every day with prayer, my days are not good. But those times that I do seek the Lord in the morning, those days are better. And by by better, I don't just mean sunshine and and, uh, ice cream Sundays. What I mean is better spiritually. I am more focused on eternal things. I am better prepared to fight sin in my heart. And I'm quicker to pray throughout the day if I start with it. Now, if you've read your Bible, that reality should not be all that surprising. So many of the godliest people that we read about in the book started their day with prayer, seeking the Lord early, rising with the sun to give thanks to him and all of his blessings, not least of which was Jesus himself. Now, it doesn't mean that all of my praying has to be done in the morning. Daniel and others make a point of praying three times a day. The author of Psalm 119 says that he prayed seven times a day. And then you get to the New Testament, and Paul says, Don't ever stop praying. Pray all the time. And because, at least in the morning, prayer means a quiet house that requires early hours. And so my morning comfort must yield to my need for daily godliness. Now, I've not always been consistent in that, but I've always paid the price for that inconsistency. I've come to learn that my mornings need to begin like a battlefield general exiting his tent, looking at the enemy ready for the day's battle and assignments or I will inevitably end up at the end of the day licking my wounds with more to confess than to be thankful for. And so with that testimony, we come to Psalm 5 this morning. Several weeks ago, actually it may be several months ago now, We looked at Psalm 4, and if you're here for that, uh, um, then you will remember that we looked at what it it meant to pray at the end of the day. We saw David's example of ending the day content and confident in God. He was not restless at night, he was not tossing and turning in his bed, rather sleep came easy because David knew who God was and how he could be trusted with all of his burdens. So today we see the other side of the coin. Psalm 5 is about a different kind of way to pray, or a different way to pray, specifically how to pray in the morning, how David prayed in the morning. What we see is that David is not just unburning himself now and and ready for sleep. No, it's the opposite. David is going on the offensive. David is ready to attack the day. Rather than merely resting in God's salvation, David now seeks to advance God's kingdom. Morning prayer is meant to prepare him for action that he might faithfully live for his God and King. And so while we linger here in these opening weeks of the year, and we are still probably mindful of wanting to do something different or better than what we did in the previous year or years, we may specifically be thinking about our prayer lives and how they can be more meaningful. And this psalm can help us with that. Psalm 5 can help us to learn better what we as God's people ought to pray, why we ought to pray, and how we ought to pray. And so if you're struggling with your prayer life this morning, if you feel like maybe you're in a rut, or perhaps you've never had much of a prayer life, then I would encourage you to let this Psalm of David be an example for you this morning and in the new year. So with that in mind, let's stand and let's read Psalm 5. Follow along as I read. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice, let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we think about Psalm 5 and seek to unpack its truths for us this morning, we want to again think about this as an example to follow. And so following this example, like David, then we should begin by considering how we approach God's throne. How we approach God's throne. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Approach God's throne. In these opening verses, they show us the posture of David's heart as he comes before God in prayer. The first thing that we, we see here is that we ought to come with believing prayer. We ought to come with believing prayer. Notice to whom David prays. In verse 1, he addresses Yahweh, the Lord. He says, He is my King and my God. So prayer, all real prayer, starts with this fundamental belief, this faith in God. And this is more than just a generic, I believe God exists kind of faith. The, the, the kind of faith that, that, that would lead us to prayer is kind of a last ditch, Hail Mary option for hard times. Well, God, I, I know you're up there. Come and do something in my life. No, this is more than that. It's more certain than that. It's more intimate than that. This is the kind of faith that flows from one who believes God's promises and is seeking to live a life in keeping with that belief. The Lord is not just God and King over Israel or over the world or over creation. David says, He is my King. He is my God. The Lord is David's God. He is David's King. And that's how our prayer as believers should begin. We know who God is. Again, we have faith in him. We trust him. We believe his promises. And as a result, we know who we are before him, fully dependent upon him, living under his good and gracious reign. So we begin with a heart of faith. We we begin with believing prayer. But then because of that, we're also encouraged to bring honest prayer, honest prayer. Across the first two verses, David uses three expressions to describe his prayer in asking God to hear. He says, give ear to my words, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. And while the idea of words conveys a certain sense of order that we're going to talk about in a minute, when he talks about groaning and crying, we're into something altogether different, aren't we? We're we're into something that, that, that goes deeper than just the words that are coming off his lips. In fact, that same word for groaning uh, that we see is the same word in Psalm 1 for meditating. And I don't think as, as uh, his role in as a king and the, the requirements of the king in Deuteronomy to read God's law daily, I don't think it's a stretch to say that when he talks about the groanings, it's these groanings that come out of his meditation on the law. Every day David arises and he meditates and he thinks about here's who God is, here's what he's done for Israel, here's what he expects of his people and the world, and he sees that's not what's happening. That's not the way it is. The way it's supposed to be does not align with what is actually happening in the world and in his own country and perhaps even in his own heart. And so it produces this sense of groaning and crying out. In other words, David is not just praying over casual thoughts. But the deep longings of his heart, the churnings of the most inward places is what is producing this prayer to God. We think about our own experience in this. We live in a world that is ravaged by sin. Sometimes we feel that more than others. There are those times though when, whether we vocalize it or not, in the deepest parts of our life we're saying, God, this hurts! God, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Or God, I don't even know how to pray in this circumstance. How how do I begin? And and it's, it's that kind of honesty that flows from a life that knows God, that trusts Him, that has intimate faith in Him, a faith that knows that we don't need to hold back. We don't need to kind of filter our thoughts before God. He knows it already. And so we can be honest about our concerns and our fears. This is why Spurgeon can say, words are not the essence, but merely the garments of our prayers. Notice also that that raw, honest urgency is in some ways balanced out in verse 3. Here we see that David offers purposeful prayer. Purposeful prayer. David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Now, in that last phrase, the ESV has a marginal note with an alternate reading. Instead of, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, one might translate this as, in the morning I direct my prayer to you. Now, why the difference? Why the difference between sacrifice and prayer? Well, the translators aren't dummies, right? They're not just saying, no, this sounds good. I think I like this, whatever, whatever. No, no. These are learned men and women who are producing this translation. The problem is the verb, I prepare or I offer, doesn't have an object, and so they've got to make a decision: what is, what is he preparing? What is he offering to the Lord? And one of the reasons why they have sacrifices and option is because this is the same word used in the Old Testament for the offerings and sacrifices that are prepared by the priest. So in verse one, the, excuse me, Leviticus chapter one, the verb is used to describe the priest laying out the wood on the altar as well as the chunks of the sacrificial animal to be offered. In chapter 28, it's used to describe the priest laying out the showbread. And in all of this, it's easy to understand why they went with sacrifice. But, like most commentators and some other translations and even their own footnote, I think that that the alternate reading is best. David is not a priest. He would not be handling the sacrifices like that. More importantly, this whole thing is in the context of prayer. So I think this verse should be something like, I lay my request before you. But think about the implications. While the priests are methodically preparing, laying out, getting ready to offer the morning sacrifices, David is also methodically laying out and preparing his prayers before God. Just as the priest operates his ministry in an orderly way, so David's praying. Though coming from these deep places, though full of raw honesty and urgency, are nevertheless purposeful, they're thoughtful, they're intentional. And so what about us? Perhaps we are quick to pray from the heart, but we do little to plan from the head when it comes to our prayer lives. Do we come before God with any kind of orderly intention, any kind of purposefulness, or do we just pray with whatever we're thinking about at any moment of the day? Are we even meandering? moving in and out of a mindset of prayer, thinking about uh, things of little consequence or specific plans for the day, and then hopping back into a kind of, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be praying mindset. In his commentary on the Psalms, Dale Ralph Davis makes the point that if we aren't careful, our prayers can start with a deluge of religious jargon, sprinkled with some, oh Lord's, every fourth or fifth word, and end up with a lot of blah, blah, blah. There's not much substance, let alone much purpose in our praying. And don't mistake the point. We're not talking about or advocating for eloquence, but thoughtfulness, intentionality, purpose in our prayers. So if that's not us, on the really practical side, there are several things that you can do to move toward that kind of praying. You can use an old style prayer list or a journal of some kind. You can use something like the prayer cards that Paul Miller advocates in his books. Or there's a great little book series called Five Things to Pray which unites biblical themes directly from the text of Scripture with specific ways that you can pray for all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. Regardless of how you get there, the challenge is this. Just as the priest regularly orderly, intentionally fulfill their duties, so ought we when it comes to how we present our requests before God. We ought to come purposefully, not just for ourselves, but our friends, the church, and the world. And when we do, we can come expecting God to answer. This is what we see at the end of verse 3. David offers expectant prayer. Expectant prayer. David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. What does he mean, watch? Well, again, it's the same word that's used for guarding the city walls, those that would stand as guardsmen constantly gazing out across the horizon looking for any sight of the enemy. David says he calls out to God in prayer. He does so with inaudible murmurings and loud cries and purposed words, and then he watches. That is, he watches and he waits. Assuming, believing, expecting, God's actually going to answer his prayers. He's actually going to do something in response to what he has said to him in prayer, that God will hear and act. And I think, that, I think for, for me, the most remarkable example of that kind of prayerfulness is the example that we see in George Mueller. We've talked about him before. Several years ago, a good friend of mine gave me his, bio, his autobiography, and it was a very compelling read. It is long. If you're going to look that up, it's probably about that thick, so be prepared. But it's worth your time. It's worth your time. And, and one, of the, what, what, one of the reasons is the amazing ways in which God poured out his blessings on Mueller's ministry. I think in part because of his consistent and persistent and expectful prayer and reliance on God. Listen to this one little insert. He says, I am now in 1864 waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily besought Him for 19 years and 6 months without one day's intermission. Still, the full answer is not yet given concerning the conversion of certain individuals. So think about what what he's saying there. Mueller has prayed for 19 and a half years for certain people to come to faith in Christ. For certain people who were on their way to hell to hear the gospel, to believe, and to come into God's kingdom. 19 and a half years. I think most of us at some point in there would say, George, it's time to pray for somebody else. God doesn't seem like he's going to answer. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, I don't know anybody who's prayed every day for someone to be saved, for a specific person to be saved for 19 years. If you have, then come and encourage me later. But that's not George's response. He continues in the next sentence. I am daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answer. Mueller embodies the peak of what David is talking about here in his own experience. He prays and then he watches for the Lord to work. He expects... That God has heard his prayer and he's going to show up and do something in response to that. That God, he's not just shooting prayers up because it's the right religious thing to do. Because he knows God, he is known by God, he trusts God and therefore God is going to act. And so the challenge is simply this, is that the way that we pray? I think that our faith in God, our honesty in prayer, the purposefulness, all of that flows into a kind of expectancy in a way that is different than if we're very weak and haphazard in our prayer time. Of course, you may say, well, how do I get the motivation for that kind of praying? Well, David does not leave us on the hook here. He shows us why he prays that way. He shows us the spiritual foundation that gives rise to a prayer life that is believing and honest and purposeful and expectant. Namely, that he knows God's character. And so, so this is the, the second principle that we see that we ought to imitate in this psalm. That we ought to know God's character. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 begins with that word, for In other words, David is telling us the reason for verses one through three, the reason he can pray the way that he does. He prays this way because of who he knows God to be. God's character drives the prayers of God's people. Perhaps if you don't write anything else down, write that down this morning. God's character drives the prayers of God's People. We have seen that truth in other psalms. We will continue to see it as the other pastors preach through uh, their psalms throughout this year, and we will see it throughout the rest of the Bible. You cannot see a faithful believer praying and not see how their praying is tied to God's character. Here is who God is. Here is what he has done. Therefore, this is how we're going to pray. And so I think we could go a step further and say, if we don't learn to pray that way, if we don't learn to base our prayers, not just our confidence, but even the kinds of things that we pray for on God's character, then we're not going to be praying in a thoroughly biblical way. In this context, David zeroes in on one particular character attribute, namely the holiness of God. And he begins where I think most Christians would begin when he says, To the Lord, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. To dwell implies some kind of permanence. It's the image of pitching a tent and spending time someplace. Such is the holiness of God, David says, that evil has no place. It can't do that. It can't hang around the Lord. It's like a drop of water that would drop onto a hot uh, skillet or on a hot eye on your oven range. It just sizzles out of existence. There's nothing left of sin in God's unshielded presence. This is why Hebrews can say in chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire. And so David can say to him, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. There's no scenario whereby sin is acceptable to God. It is always antithetical to the very core of his being. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 that God's wrath is coming into the world. Because sin is in the world. For God, sin is never funny. Sin is never cute. Sin is never acceptable. It's not something to be entertained by. David goes further, though. He says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Man, Now, I think these specific sins that David is focused on here are those sins that are exhibited by his enemies, those that are attacking him, those that are seeking to dethrone him. He has been on the receiving end of wicked men who boasted in their own glory, who were speaking deceitfully with lies about David, thirsty for the violence that would come with deposing him as king in Israel. And yet the reality is we can pop any sin in there and God's response would be the same. You hate all evildoers. Now, maybe even now, you, you squirm a little bit when you read that verse, verse 5. David proclaiming, you hate all evildoers. You squirm because your response might be something to say, well, well, yeah, yeah, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner, right? That was Gandhi who said that, not Jesus. You will not find that verse in the Bible. And yet there is some shade of truth to it. As we will see even later in this psalm, that God extends mercy and forgiveness and love towards sinners so that they do not experience the fullness of His wrath. And yet, the fundamental truth still exists. God hates all evildoers. He abhors those who sin. Why? Because He hates sin. And sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. He despises sin. He judges sin. He condemns sin to hell. And people commit sin. Sins. People disobey his commands. People give worship to something other than himself. People speak lies. People, people do violence. People hate God himself. This is why he doesn't just say, God, you oppose boasting, you oppose evil, you oppose bloodthirstiness, you oppose deceit. No, what does he say? The boastful, the person who is boastful, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You destroy those people, those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Sin merits God's just wrath. Evil and wickedness warrant destruction. Notice that God isn't just asserting this to be true of God. This is part of why he praises God in the holiness of his character. Now, again, if if that makes us maybe a little squirmy, and if if we're struggling to to not just say amen with David, let, let let me just pose this option that may be there. It is perhaps that God looks more like us than what he looks like in the Bible. It's perhaps that we want to understand and seek after and serve and worship a God that is more to our liking and more to our imagination and more to our values than the God who reveals himself and all of his glorious character in the Scriptures. David reminds us that part of the real power and lasting motivation in prayer comes when we praise, rep- repent, thank, and ask God, For those things which rise up out of the glory of his character that we see revealed in the scriptures. David can pray the way he prays because he knows God's character. And that also leads to specific kinds of praying. So the third thing that we see here, the third example or or, or, or point of imitation is that we ought to petition God to act. That we ought to petition God to act. We see this in verses 7 through 10. Notice two things as we consider these verses. First, we're halfway through the psalm before David actually prays for anything. He's been preparing himself. He's been meditating on God and his character. All of that has been leading up to him now actually asking God for something in his praying. Then consider what he asks for is not disconnected from everything else that he's just talked about in the psalm. Specifically, he zeroes in, on remember, on God's holy character and now he prays in light of that holiness. So if you, were to, if you were to zoom in on God's love, you would pray in light of his love. His mercy, you could pray in light of his mercy. That There are specific things to pray for related to God's specific attributes. But if we're thinking about this characteristic of holiness and a posture of the heart that is responding to God's holiness, then like David, we should begin by asking humbly, we ask for things humbly. We ask humbly. Notice David has identified God's holiness in that he hates all evildoers, but it's also possible to experience God's forgiveness that flows from his grace and covenant love. We see in verse 7, in contrast to his enemies, David says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. How, how, does, how does God, or how does David rather, have that kind of confidence? How does he have confidence to pray before God and know that he is acceptable when he approaches in worship? It's by God's grace alone. He says it's because of God's steadfast love that he is able to do that, that he is acceptable to God. This steadfast love is his covenant love, his commitment to his people. And that the Psalms, and those who write the Psalms, delight in this, often. More than half one scholar notes more than half of the bible 's references to god 's covenant love are found in the psalms, and of half of those references come from David himself. He is a man driven by an understanding that he is who he is, that he has the relationship that he has with God simply by the lord 's grace, simply by his steadfast love. he doesn 't come dependent upon his own righteousness to be heard by God, he is his standing, and his acceptance comes from god 's steadfast love. And so that keeps him humble, and it should keep us humble in prayer as well. When we go before God in prayer, we aren't barking orders at him. Do this, do this, do this. We don't complain that the circumstances of our life are so terrible that somehow God is now terrible and unloving and unkind toward us. No, we come humbly because we know it's only by His gracious love that we even can be acceptable before Him in worship and in prayer. We come humbly knowing that it is God's gift that allows us to be welcomed to the heavenly throne. It is only His steadfast love that allows Him to encourage us to come before Him in prayer. And so so we should be encouraged. If we have experienced God's forgiving grace, then we should be encouraged to go before Him in prayer because He delights to hear the prayers of His children. Yet, we also don't come with a sense of entitlement, right? We take prayer seriously, remembering who God is and why we can stand before Him in prayer. And so we don't take prayer casually. It's not a time for jokes. We're challenged to remember We're entering the throne room of the sovereign king, and we're there because of his grace. So we ask humbly, and when we do ask, we seek righteousness. We seek righteousness. Verse 8 has the first and central petition of this psalm. It's the first time David actually asked God to do something. What does he pray for? Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Despite the fact that David's enemies would deceive and discourage him, or rather because of it, he's saying, God, don't let me fall into temptation there. Don't let me be discouraged. Don't let me act like them. Instead, lead me in righteousness. Make straight your way for me. David is praying, God, direct me to live the way you want me to live. You are a holy God. Help me to live in light of that holiness. Help me to to live in your righteous ways, not leering from or veering from the right or to the left. And so this prayer of David is very similar to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's just another way of saying, God, lead me to live out your righteous ways in this world. David's enemies, just like the sinners around us today, can easily provoke us to sin. And then rejoice in our hypocrisy at not living faithfully before God. And so like David, we want to seek after God's righteousness because he is holy. We ought to walk in holiness. And notice the thing about this kind of prayer, this request, it's not dependent on any kind of specific circumstance. There are many times in the Christian life we have no idea what God is doing. We don't know what's going on. Like Job, we may be blind to the spiritual forces that are work at work in our circumstances. We could be like Paul in Acts 16. We are faithfully trying to do the ministry that we know he's called us to, and yet God is moving us off. He's closing doors. And we're saying, what, what, what's happening? What, what, why, can't I, why can't I do what God wants me to do? Or it may just be the sting of life. Sickness. In us or in others, deep and personal and lasting suffering, we just want to sit in silence. How do we pray in those circumstances? At the very least, we can start with this. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. It's the kind of prayer that we pray all the time. It's the kind of prayer that summarizes our life before God, rather than allowing enemies and circumstances to overwhelm us, we, we, we pray for ourselves. Lead us, O oh Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before us. So David has showed that we ought to ask humbly, that we should seek righteousness. And finally, in the kinds of things that he prays for, notice that he says that we ought to, we ought to desire justice when we pray. Desire justice. David has asked God to lead him in righteousness because of his enemies. What are his enemies like? He goes on to tell us. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Does that sound familiar? Even if you've not read Psalm 5 in a long time or maybe ever, Paul quotes this as part of the the phrases that he heaps from the Old Testament to paint a picture of the total depravity of the human race. How sin runs through all of us and in in all of the facets of our life. David has just identified God's hatred of those who sin. So how does he pray about his sinning enemies? He knows that because God is holy, sin should be judged. So here's what he prays. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David prays that these people would experience God's just judgment. Again, he's holy and sin must be dealt with. Specifically, he says that those who walk in wickedness wickedness should experience the folly of their own immoral counsels. They plot and they deceive and they're trying to direct others towards sin. He says, may they reap the bitter fruit of their wicked planning. May their sinful intentionality fall back upon them and bring destruction upon them. Now, this is the first time in the book of Psalms, even though we've bounced around, this is the first time that we see what is sometimes called the imprecatory prayers, that is, prayers for God to curse or judge the wicked. And again, it's a a part of the Bible that can make believers uncomfortable. Well, I don't have time to deal exhaustively with this issue, and um, I know Pastor Michael is going to be dealing with a much more difficult, much more graphic uh, pronunciation of A curse, so I don't want to steal his thunder and let him deal more in detail with that. But let me just remind you of a few things, particularly in this context. When David is praying these things, it is not about personal vengeance. It's not about a personal vindication, just the opposite. They are coming before God, or rather he is coming before God, asking him to be the just judge that he is. These aren't just David's enemies. Remember what we saw in Psalm 2? To oppose Israel's God is also to oppose Israel's anointed, his king. And so if they are David's enemies, that makes them God's enemies. In fact, he says this right at the end. They have rebelled against you, he says. And so these prayers are offered not, again, David just saying, oh, I hate these guys, I want to see them gone. No, no, he's saying these people are at enmity with you, God. They are your enemies. Bring justice upon them. But moreover, these are not like struggling believers who are trying to figure out how to live sanctified lives and you're just like tired of it. I'm like, God, just curse them. I'm tired of dealing with this immature person. No, that's not the point. These are unbelievers. These are unrepented, hard-hearted, pervasively wicked people. The implication is that they will suffer a just condemnation because they have refused to turn and submit to the Lord. Again, much more can be said about this, but here's the real question we're probably asking. Can this kind of language be part of my prayers? Now, if you know me, I hate equivocation, but the answer is yes and no. No, this should not be part of our prayer language if we're driven by pride and personal revenge. Now we're we're sinning. It's off limits. But yes, by implication at the very least, this will be part of your praying even if you just follow the examples that we have in the New Testament. Jesus instructed us to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we are praying for God's kingdom to come about and be made more manifest by implication, what are we praying? That those lesser wicked sinful kingdoms fall in light of God's kingdom. If we pray like John at the end of the Bible, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I pray that often. Uh, This world wears me down sometimes because of its sin and, and, and wickedness. Think about what we're praying now. We're praying for Jesus to return not just with salvation for his people, but with judgment on the wicked. That's what his return will bring. As Christians, we are called to the highest ethic of love imaginable to love even our enemies and to do good toward them. We labor in love to spread the saving message of Christ to sinners. But make no mistake, God is never soft on sin. He will never look the other way. He will give no quarter to the wicked. Unimaginable, eternal, just terror is coming to those who remain defiant toward Him in this life. Yet for His people... For the humble, the penitent, the faithful, something different awaits. And this is how David ends the psalm. David ends his prayer by saying that all who truly know and trust the Lord should rejoice in his care. So this is the last thing that we see in verses 11 through 12. That when we pray, we should rejoice in God's care. Rejoice in God's care. Unlike the wicked who should bear their guilt before God, he says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. That This is actually a prayer not just for himself, but for all God's people, right? All who rejoice, or, or, or rather all who take refuge in God, should rejoice and exult and be confident in his care. Why? They can sing for joy and take refuge in him. Verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You think about the kind of shield that David would have used in battle. He was a warrior after all. It would have been something small. It would have been something wooden. It would have been something that he would have had to have been light enough for him to carry and maneuver around as he's in battle. But think about what it also means is that he's got to see the enemy coming in order to, for the shield to be effective, right? He's, he's got to be able to, to see on the battlefield, okay, arrows coming there, got it. And now, I'm chopping that guy down. And what's over here? Doom, sword, doom, sword. And then I'm coming over here, what's behind me? What's going on? He's got to be able to, all the time, ready, engaged to be, for that shield to be effective at all. But what does he say about God? Your shield, O oh Lord, covers the righteous. There's no directional awareness that is needed. Even if you can't see the enemy, the Lord covers, He surrounds, He encompasses His people with His protecting power, and no attack is ever going to be able to overtake Him. Why? Because the shield is the Lord's favor. It is His grace poured out in fullness over the lives of His people. When I was a student in seminary, every, uh, every divinity student was required to read a short little book by a German theologian named Helmut Tillich. And it's the first you heard of him, that's fine. And now you've got something cool to share. Uh, hey, you ever heard of Helmut Tillich the next time you're at a party? But anyway, the book was great. It was called An Exercise for Young Theologians. Uh, if you're interested in theology, you should read it. But the man himself was far more interesting. And I could tell you all kinds of stories. He, he, he was uh, going up and uh, advancing in theology and, and pastoring right as Hitler was ascending to power. And he was at great conflict with Hitler, which meant his life was in danger in his autobiography, Tilica talks about being a boy of about 10. This is before he is the German theologian, Dr. Tilica. He's just Helmut. And he talks about this other boy in his class named Hans that raised the ire of, of many. And his only crime was being smart. He was blessed with a great brain that learned easily. And so he had a kind of lackadaisical attitude toward his studies. But he was always first in his class with excellent grades. And whether it was real or imagined, the other students saw him as prideful. And so Helmut and his friends decided, you know what, we're going to put this kid in his place. Hans, we're going to wipe the smirk off your face. And so they were lying in wait to beat him up before school one day. But that day, Hans' father walked him to school. And according to Helmut, his father was one of the most well-respected one of the most well-liked men in the community. And before Hans went into the school, his father stroked his hair as he talked to him and, and put his face, or rather his hand across his cheek as he patted him. He showed the kind of loving affection a father should have for his beloved son. Several times, Helmut says that, that as, as Hans went into the school, he would turn around and he, him and his father would wave. And he would take a few more steps, he would turn around, and him and his father would wave. And Helmut says that while his friends were lying in wait to ambush him, something happened in their minds and in their hearts. He says, though no, they never talked about it. They never verbalized it. All of them came to realize this, quote, Whoever was loved by such a father stood under a protective taboo that could not, and could not be bothered. When David prays for justice, when he prays, make them bear their guilt, O Lord, we we only have two right responses to that. The first is abject terror and fear because we know that's us. We are the evildoer. We've not repented, we've not trusted in God, and I'm going to receive wrath. The other response is one of humble gratitude. For we know that even more than David, we have experienced the Lord's favor. For we have, He has seen us in our, the fullness of our guilt and rebellion, and He has poured out His loving kindness upon us through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We know that on the cross, Jesus was cursed under the judgment of the Lord so that we could be blessed by His salvation. He was pierced for the abundance of our transgressions so that we could take refuge in him for all of eternity. He was treated as an evildoer in our place so that we could experience his steadfast love and be welcomed to his throne of grace and prayer. He groaned and cried under the wrath of his righteous father so that we could sing for joy and exult in him and the righteousness that he gives us. And in raising Christ Jesus from the dead, he has established him as the all-sovereign shepherd king over all things. So now, like a loving father, he shows his kindness and his favor. Spiritually, he, he, he strokes our cheek and he pats our hair in Christ, shielding us from every spiritual enemy. Thus, the refuge of the Lord Jesus is lasting and all-encompassing. We can entrust Him to every single part of our lives in the worst of circumstances and in not knowing anything of God's plan or the plan of our enemies. Knowing because of His steadfast love, He will bless us, He will protect us, and He will save us. So Christian, rejoice this morning in that glorious salvation. But friend, if you have not made Christ your Savior today, If you have not humbled yourself and repented and trusted in Jesus, then do not delay. Do not be found as the unforgiven evildoer on the day of His return. Loved ones, with such joyful assurance, may we, His people, begin each day with confident prayers for ourselves, this church, and the world seeking to advance God's glorious kingdom. And may we preach his glorious gospel of Christ with zeal and urgency, knowing that the promise of forgiveness in life is freely offered to every sinner who would repent and believe. Knowing also that Christ is returning, not just to bring salvation, but just judgment for all those who have not believed. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your grace this morning. We are humbled to know that we are so loved and cared for by you, the eternal God. You whose eyes are too pure to behold wickedness. You whose glorious presence cannot tolerate the tents of wickedness. You who have no need to make us your friends, let alone your children. And yet, God, you have called us out of our darkness, out of our sin, out of being objects rightfully of your wrath to be your people, forgiven, made clean, and protected for all eternity from your steadfast love father may we not only exult and rejoice in that may it give us motivation in worship and in prayer and in praying to advance your kingdom in this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ help us also God to be proclaiming that message trusting watching you expectantly to save people We ask, Father, that you would make us students of your character, that again and again and again we might be encouraged and emboldened to go before your throne of grace with prayers that delight to see you act in this world. As we continue to reflect silently on these things, ask the Lord how he would have you respond to Psalm 5 today.